Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. This is God's holy word. It is given to us for our good, God's inerrant and infallible word. Receive it as such and give your attention as it's read in the presence of his people. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Great, holy, mighty God, we now come before your word and ask that by your spirit you would illumine this scripture to us, be with your servant as he proclaims it. You are always more ready to give than we are to receive, so prepare our hearts and cleanse us and renew us. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does one do when one arrives at perfection? What would it be like to be perfect, to be perfect in, in something, to be perfect in, in, in some kind of pursuit. It's a, it's a question that can only really be briefly pondered. The greatest in every field of performance or study in this world knew this perhaps more than all of us, that, that perfection eludes us. You think of the great athletes, great artists, composer, composers of our world, and they all seem to be uh, similarly possessed by this driving desire for excellence and, and greatness, but it was probably them, perhaps more than anyone else, who felt their own imperfections and their, their inability to grasp at what is truly perfect. Athletes like Michael Jordan or 
Tiger Woods, composers like Beethoven, uh, all of these artists like Michelangelo, uh, similarly possessed with this drive, this unbelievable drive for greatness, and yet all of them seeming to be plagued by something similar, this acute realization that they, they can't, they were not perfect, and it was not something that they were going to achieve in, in this life. You see, perfection eludes us. Would have been them, perhaps, if they would have gotten to perfection. What, what, what do you do? You reach that state of perfection. You rest. You stop pursuing. You stop grasping after it because there's nothing else to grasp for. But it eludes us. But there, there is, beloved, thankfully, one aspect of our lives where we arrive at perfection, where we see it We behold it and we make it our own. It's the the work of Jesus Christ. His perfection is put on display in this passage before us. The the perfect Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who gives to us, to his people, who presents to the world that final and perfect and one sacrifice in which uh, we are forgiven. And so, when we come up to this perfection, the perfection of Christ, what what do we do? Well, first, we must make sure that it is ours, that we have made it our own. This is the call to faith, the the call to take all of the work of Christ and to, to bring it to yourself, to bring it into yourself so that it is made yours. And then, secondly, to rest and to live in the sweet comfort of Christ's perfect work. If we truly believe that His work is perfect, then we must glory in and enjoy that perfection. We must come to know something of the the peace and the comfort and joy that it gives to the believer. We must recognize and believe in that perfection then. We must participate in that perfection, and we must live in the peace that it brings to us, an ultimate peace that God gives to us in a world where all other perfection eludes us. So, first then, the perfect work of Christ. One of the chief things that we are pointed to in this passage is the, the, the perfect and final complete work of, of Christ, who is our ultimate Passover lamb, who saves us from ultimate death. Jesus says, and we'll pick up looking mostly at the latter part of this passage, He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. This one is the one I have been looking forward to. It's an amazing thing. All of us eat every day, and certainly we've had the experience where there is a certain dinner that we are looking forward to. It's because of the situation or the the people with whom we will dine. We all know that experience, and Jesus and His apostles had had many Passover meals by this point in their life, but this is the one that Jesus is looking forward to. He is eager uh, to eat it. Why? What sets it apart? Well, it's because He's going to, to teach them something not only to teach them something, but to show them something dramatic that is going to take place. Jesus here will will turn the page from one epoch to another, from one age of of redemptive history to another. And that dramatic scene unfolds uh, before the eyes of the apostles and before the eyes of our hearts uh, in this passage this morning. But what is the Passover celebrating. What, what, what is it pointing to? Exodus 12 tells us it's the dramatic exit uh, from Egypt when God saves His people out of, of Egypt. God was to, to visit in such furious wrath that this was going to be the time where Pharaoh finally says, go. He had said it a few times and then changed his mind, but God's display of power and might and fury 
uh, in the taking of the firstborn was going to be that which made Pharaoh say, leave, get out now. I can't have you here anymore. And so because of that, God's people were to, uh, to eat with their clothes on ready to go and their sandals on their feet. Uh, so it was something that celebrated that great episode in the history of God's people. It was a redemptive feast, though, wasn't it? A redemptive feast that looked to the blood of the lamb that covered the doorpost of the house, and the, the angel of death passed over those homes where the blood was found. It was really a, a redemptive feast. So Jesus, as the, the sovereign Lord, brings his disciples together, and he brings the ages together, and he turns the page to a new one. This is similar to what happens with the, the Sabbath when Jesus and the human body of Jesus is in the grave. It is on that last Jewish Sabbath, a Saturday, where Jesus' body was in the grave, and at dawn, at the next day, at the first light of the first Christian Sabbath. You see, the, the last Jewish Sabbath and the first Christian Sabbath meet side by side. Isn't that amazing? And this is a similar thing to what happens here. The, the last true and proper Passover, celebrated in a, in a redemptive way, according to all of God's true people, here is celebrated for the last time, and the page is turned over to something new, this new covenant meal that God gives to us. This is what Jesus does, turns from one page to the next. What we're saying here is that Jesus is our true and ultimate Passover lamb. What does that mean? It, it means that Jesus takes the, the picture of the Passover and the meaning of the Passover feast, and he gives us those things, those blessings, but in an ultimate sense. That's what Jesus does as our Passover lamb. So it means that he will be the one who, by his victory and power, leads us out of ultimate slavery our slavery to sin and death. He will be the one who saves us from ultimate death, that is eternal condemnation for those who are outside of God's uh, saved people, the death which would have come to us at the final judgment. And Jesus will be the one who leads us out of that land of slavery and sin and into the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So today we remember him as our Passover lamb. It's amazing to see how Jesus takes on this role for us with, with willingness, with knowledge of what is to come, and, and he does not shrink back from it. He knows what, what awaits him, but he willingly submits to his path of suffering. He says, I will not eat again until the kingdom of God is, is fulfilled. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, what is this? This is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm entering into a particular period of intense suffering. A possible illustration we could use in that day, if someone were suffering under a, 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 a great trial, friends would perhaps gift that person with wine in order to be with them in their suffering, just a way to sort of comfort them, something to, to be with them. And if someone refused the gift, if they said no, what they were saying is, I'm, I'm going to go through this path of suffering accepting the, the, the most uh, blunt uh, punishment that I can receive and the full force of it because I am suffering justly. I'm going through this path of suffering and I'm doing it justly knowing that God has brought this into my life. It was a way of someone saying, no, I, I need to feel the full weight of this. Jesus, in a similar way, enters into his path of suffering here. 
Now we know that Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect one, did not do anything to merit himself this suffering, this punishment that that he was about to receive. In fact, it was the greatest scandal in human history that the only one who ever lived perfect was also executed as a criminal. That says something about the sinfulness of our world, that the, the one sinless man who has ever lived is the one who was executed as, as, as a criminal. But in the wisdom of God, everything that takes place is just. And Jesus is saying, this is just in the sense that I am taking for myself the sins of my people. I'm going to bear them, and I'm going to pay the price for them. So you see this all throughout the New Testament Scripture, speaking of Christ. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In my place, condemned he stood. So it's Jesus willingly taking on the suffering and saying that what happens here is just. God is just in forgiving you, dear sinner. He is just in welcoming you into fellowship with Him, beloved. Why? Because all that Jesus did was just. Because He willingly went to the cross. And in that makes a perfect redemption for us. The perfection is pointed to in the signs that Jesus gives in this this new covenant meal. It tells us that uh, what Jesus will suffer at the cross is sufficient. Why? These are are non-bloody signs. There is no lamb that needs to be sacrificed as we go on and on into the future. This this new covenant meal is one that points to the perfection of the one sacrifice of Christ. So he gives non-bloody signs as a reminder that the price is perfectly paid in him. That's the blessing of bread and wine, that there there is no lamb, there is no animal sacrificed here today because we remember the work of our Savior. We remember the work of our mediator. Let's think just for a couple more minutes of Jesus, Jesus Christ as our willing Savior. Should this not amaze us? Should this not amaze us that He willingly goes? Jesus, the friend for sinners, who dies for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, He died for us. One hymn that reflects on the cross says, For me, kind Jesus, was Thine incarnation. Thy mortal sorrow and Thy life's oblation, Thy death of anguish and Thy bitter passion for my salvation, for me, it should amaze us. One Puritan puts it this way, Christ had hard suffering upon the cross, but he does not regret it. Does not regret it. Think about that. But he thinks that his sweat and blood were well spent because he sees redemption brought forth to the world. Oh, the infinite, amazing love of Christ, a love that goes beyond our knowledge that neither man nor angel can parallel how we should be affected with this love, how it should change us, how it should grip our hearts, how it ought to to fill us with with gratitude and and love for God and love for one another, shouldn't it? Indeed. Perfection. Participation. How does one participate? Well, how do we participate in the the benefits of of the altar before Christ came? It was a, we go back to the picture of, of the Passover. It's not just that the, the lamb was sacrificed. You had to eat the lamb. 
that was sacrificed. And the picture of this was that one takes into himself the cleansing power and benefits of the animal that was sacrificed, the unblemished lamb who is sufficient in that in that arrangement at that time. It pointed forward, but it was sufficient to show the Israelites and to give them forgiveness. So it was a way to take in the benefits of that sacrifice. If the lamb cleanses from sin, you must bring that into yourself. And so Jesus says we must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. The catechism reminds us, what does that that mean? Ultimately, it means to accept with a believing heart all that he has done for you to cleanse your sins away. And that's what happens when we come to the table. We're coming to the table when we eat and drink in faith. We're saying that ultimately we believe and accept We have true faith, in other words, that his work is sufficient. That's what cleanses us. And as we eat and drink in faith, God is faithful. He has told us he is faithful, that his spirit attends to our observation of the Lord's Supper in that way to unite us more and more with Christ, to feed us and nourish us spiritually. The fundamental issue there is is faith to accept with a believing heart. That's what it means to to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, to take his saving power into you that it might be applied to your soul, that you might be forgiven, that you might have salvation. We come in faith, looking away from ourselves and trusting in the work of, of Jesus. The other hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So, brothers and sisters, are you flying to that fountain? Is that how you are participating in Jesus Christ, the Savior? Is that something you have done or are doing in your life? Are you continually going to the waters of grace? Are you plunging yourself in the benefits of Christ by faith? Are you always returning to the rest which Jesus Christ gives to you by faith? Certainly in in our Christian walk, in our spiritual lives, there are ups and downs. There are times when we feel distant from our Lord and King. Now, this does not put us out of the estate of salvation. Those truly united to Christ never lose their salvation. They can never lose their place in Christ for those who have true faith. But it is something we are called to do, to always seek to stir up God's grace in our hearts or to have Him stir up His grace in our hearts. We must keep the work of Christ before us. We must grow in our knowledge of it and seek to grow and want to grow in our knowledge of it. We must be reminded of it that we might grasp each and every day uh, that we can with fresh eyes, to look unto the work of Christ with fresh eyes, with a renewed thankfulness that we grow and our love, our gratitude, our thankfulness to God in Jesus Christ. So is that where your heart is, beloved? Have you come, and are you coming, to those waters of perfection to wash yourself anew in the sweet and cool and refreshing stream of Christ's love and grace? We are called to to live in this faith and to die in this faith. Here's a way that one of the ancient uh, ministrations to the sick, someone who was uh, on, death, on their deathbed, how a minister was to speak to them. He, were, he was to say, do you believe that you cannot be saved but by the death of Christ? And the sick man answers, yes. And says this, then say to the sick man, go 
and while your soul lives, put all your confidence in Christ alone. Place your trust in no other thing. Commit yourself completely to His death. Cover yourself completely with Him alone. Throw yourself completely on His work at Calvary. Wrap yourself completely in His work. Uh, Thomas Watson says, it's not, it's not gold in the mine that makes you rich. It's gold in the hand. He says, it's not a cordial in the glass that refreshes the spirit, but a cordial drunk down. And so faith is the hand that receives Christ's golden merits. Children, if, if you are starving, will it do you any good to have a big plate of your favorite food sitting right in front of you and for you to just sit there and look at it? To just stare at it. You're, you're starving, you know, and your stomach is churning and you feel like you could eat a whole horse. Will it do you any good if your favorite food, a big plate of it, is sitting right in front of you and you just look at it? No, of course not. What do you have to do? You have to take it in to yourself. So Christ's work is there for us and we look at it and we see it. But what does the Heidelberg Catechism say? It's not just that I understand that his work is sufficient to save sinners. It's that his work is sufficient to save me. That's what true faith is. It takes it to yourself. And it says, I believe that his work on the cross, the blood that he shed is sufficient to save my sin. So I take it to myself. That's how we participate in the perfect work of Christ. And so then we think just briefly of peace. We ask whether we are coming to know and experience the peace that must come from this. If you, if you understand something of the perfect work of Christ, shouldn't it fill your heart with joy? Shouldn't it fill your heart with comfort and peace to know that He has paid the price for your sin? And it is a perfect work. It is a sufficient work. Should that not fill your heart with joy? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We're called to look into our heart, look into our soul, see the problems that we have in our lives. But for every one look that you take at yourself, the better health of your spirit will be from taking ten looks at Jesus Christ. For every one time you look at yourself, look at Jesus Christ ten times and consider his perfect work for you. And so then being at peace with God, doesn't that give us a disposition of the heart that we, we need not rely on peace here below? We need not trust in it. We're thankful when God gives us peaceful times. But when difficult time, times come, we must remember that God has set us at peace with Himself in Jesus Christ. And then if we are all together at peace with God in Christ, if we are here together as God's people gathering around the table of the Lord, remembering what He has done for us, poor, wretched, miserable sinners, should we not be at peace with one another? Shouldn't the church embody greater peace than what we see in the world? If we all likewise have felt, have experienced, have known something of that perfect redemption and peace that comes in Jesus Christ? Shouldn't it produce a peace with one another that sets us apart from the world? Is this not an opportunity? Is communion, is the Lord's Supper not an opportunity to leave behind the grudges you feel at your brother, at your sister, and to come together to bask in the glory of what Jesus has done for us? Here's our Passover, beloved.
Feast upon Christ by faith. Perfection will elude you everywhere else in this life. But here you have it. Here you have a perfect Savior. Come and rest in Him.